I think the New International Version actually translates verse 1 better. It, it, it reads this way, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. I'll read it again. That's the NIV in case you don't have it. Now faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. I don't know if you realize this or not, but most people live by faith, whether they're religious or not. They do. Uh, Faith really is what motivates our actions as we pursue what we're hoping for. So if, if you're in university, you're doing schoolwork by faith, believing that at the end of this, if you keep going at the end of this, you're going to get this degree. If you're at work, you work, you put in your hours, you try to do the things that are required of you because your hope is at the end of the week or the end of the month, you're going to get a paycheck for doing that work. You're operating by faith because it's future. You don't have it yet. It requires faith. But that faith that you're going to get this reward, you're going to get this thing at the end, motivates your actions. That's what faith is. But the author here is not just talking about faith in a generic sense. He's talking about saving faith. He's talking about faith that makes us right with God. He's talking about faith that delivers us out of darkness into light. And we know this because if you look at chapter 10, verse 39, if you remember last week when we were talking about the just live by faith, talking about that we endure by faith, we trust in Jesus and we endure by faith, the author writes this, he says, but we are not those who draw back from God to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Saving faith. Therefore, he, he says, now this faith is this in verse 1 of chapter 11. So when we're talking about faith here, what we're going to see in all of chapter 11 is really the author not so much giving us definitions of faith, but describing saving faith. This is what saving faith looks like. And so the whole chapter really is about this. It's going to take us about four weeks to get through this whole chapter because there's a lot of great stuff here. We're going to look at just really four Four descriptions of saving faith this morning. And so first we look at verse, I want you to look at verse 3. And notice it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. By faith we understand. The word for understand in verse 3 means to exercise the mind. It means you're actually trying to think about something. Notice what the author says. He's saying by faith we think. By faith, we exercise the mind. It's important for us to recognize that biblical faith is not a stopping thinking. It's not a blind leap into something like, oh, I don't understand what's going on, so I'm going to just believe. There's not a contradiction between faith and intellect. Not biblical faith and intellect, at least. God calls us by faith to exercise our mind. In fact, you might say, faith doesn't ignore our reason, it expands it. It gives us the ability to actually think in a greater way. I know for myself, growing up in a non-Christian home, growing up in an irreligious home, and asking the big questions at life from a a really young age, that that life didn't make sense. I, I couldn't accept the fact that there could be no meaning at all, and yet I thought, well, how does meaning exist? How do we even know what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad? It, it just I needed answers, and it wasn't until I came to faith in Jesus that everything began to make sense. That's why that works the way it is. And having studied Scripture and studied theology and studied philosophy for the last 25 years, I have to tell you, the more I understand about this book and the faith that's described in this book, the more I realize this is the most reasonable way 
the reasonable way that my worldview gets is, is to be shaped. I can't think of a better way to look at the world. I, I know there's other options. I know there's still big questions that I have that, well, how does this work? But every time I go back to what God says about Himself, what God says about my future, what God says mostly about His Son, the more I go, this is how I understand this world I live in, the past that's taken place, and the future that's before me. And so when the author says, by faith we understand, that's exactly what he means. He says, listen, by faith we exercise our intellect, and here's, what we do, here's how we do it, he says in verse 3. We do it, listen, it starts with, we believe that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. The worlds were framed by the Word of God. If you remember when we started the book of Hebrews, we, we talked about how the author of Hebrews starts with an assumption. In the same way the author of Genesis and the author of John's Gospel starts with an assumption, they all assume that God is real. And what he's talking about here is he's saying that we, part of saving faith is that we recognize that we, or we assume, listen, that there's the, in the reality of a personal, eternal, and transcendent creator. Personal means that God's not just some force. He's a person. He has a will. He has an intellect. He has emotions. Eternal means He's always been. I don't know if you realize this, but you only have two options. You either have to believe in the beginning God or in the beginning dirt. <laughs> you either have to believe matters eternal or that God's eternal. There's no other option really. So the reality is what the author is doing is he's wanting to counter the assumption that, they, that his readers would have, would have been told, at least by the Greek culture they're in. They would have been told that matter is eternal, energy is eternal. And so that basically that's the eternal thing. And the author, he was saying, no, no, it's not matter that's eternal, it's God that's eternal. We believe, by faith we understand, our worldview is shaped by, our intellect views things by this reality. There's a personal God who created everything out of nothing. Now this is, uh, to be clear, this is a bit separate than the kind of in-house debate we have about how you interpret Genesis. If you want to know how I interpret Genesis, go back and listen to Genesis chapter 1 on the website. But the reality, this is more than just that. This is an assumption that he's saying, by faith, we intellectually make this assumption. There is a God who's made everything, and that God being transcendent means he's separate from his creation. It's not like that God's this being and, and creation somehow is just an expansion of who he is. No, it's an expression of who he is, but not an expansion of who he is. He's separate from his creation. Now, you might be thinking at this point, okay, John, you've already lost me because you're talking about saving faith and you're talking about things I just don't understand. <laughs> I just don't get this stuff yet. That's okay. We're not talking about prerequisites for saving faith. We're talking about a description of what saving faith does. In other words, saving faith recognizes God's work. I, I think it's not far, hard for me to say this, that if you are going to have saving faith. If you're going to have a real relationship with a real God, you have to believe that He's the Creator. That's not a big stretch, is it? I know that most of you guys here are going, well, duh, we all believe that. But some people struggle with that. I've met people who say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I just think that, you know, I don't know if I believe in a Creator God. That's not how it works. Not the Jesus of the Bible, at least. He identified Himself as the only begotten Son of this Creator God. So our faith has to start with this assumption that God's the one who's made this place. God's the one who's the creator, and He's separate from His creation. 
So saving faith, listen, it recognizes God's work. Now, this is not just me kind of waxing theological and saying, let's talk about the stuff from Hebrews. This is what the psalmist talked about. Listen to this. Psalm chapter 33, verses 6 and 9 says this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Paul says a similar thing in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and notice for him. And the author of John says the same thing. John says this in his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You guys know that's talking about Jesus, don't you? His incarnation. He was in the beginning with God. It says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Do you get this? Now, this may have implications against evolution. At least evolution as the answer to origins, it does for sure. But here's what it does for sure say. We believe not that the universe is eternal, but that God is eternal, and he created that universe at some point and created space and time. Now, that has been, until recent years, the consensus of the scientific community as well. That's what the Big Bang is about. Now, there's some backtracking to that because they realize, okay, if matter can't create itself, uh, then we have to, and we say there's a Big Bang, we have to say God did that Big Bang. So they're backtracking. Well, maybe matter is eternal. Maybe maybe the fact is it doesn't have to create itself. It it just always has been. That creates all kinds of philosophical assumptions that we won't get into today. The reality is this, though, guys. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is what saving faith is. Now, remember, he's talking to Hebrews. He's talking to people of a Jewish origin who would have already assumed there was a creator. But because of persecution, we're wanting to maybe get away from Jesus. What's interesting to me about this is that this, I would think, I would assume that a Hebrew who wanted to get away from Jesus as Messiah wouldn't have to give up the idea that God's the creator. So why say this is an important part of saving faith? Well, I think he's saying this because he wants these guys to realize, listen, this is not you having to turn away from God the Creator. (laughs) Saving faith encourages you to believe the God of the Bible, Yahweh. He's your God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Creator God. I want to really challenge any of you here today that are, are stumbled by that. If you're here today and you're thinking, you know, I want to believe in Jesus, but it's just, man... This whole creation stuff, it really freaks me out. I don't know if it's really a good foundation. I want to encourage you to do two things. One, can you recognize the soundness that if there's a creation, there should be a creator? That the design of creation would say there's got to be someone who made it. That's one thing. The other thing is, I want to challenge you to be willing to talk about these things. A lot of times what happens is our our objection to, to God as creator comes from the fact that we don't want to look stupid in front of our peers. We don't want to be the one that says, you're one of them? You believe that God created the world, you're one of them? We don't want to be that way. So I would challenge you to ask the questions, to talk about this. And I'm saying this as a person who thinks. I'm saying this as a person who's cynical about things. There's some great evidence, scientific evidence, they would point to, man, there's got to be someone who started this thing, there's got to be someone who's controlling this thing. Uh, The Hubbards aren't here today, but when Joseph Hubbard comes back, I'll point you to him and you guys can have a debate. (laughs) (laughs) You probably would, yeah. 
Anyway, the point is this. Saving faith recognizes that God's work, God's work, God is the one who's made us and all that's in this world. But then we go to verse 4, and the author begins to talk about these elders that he mentions in verse 2. Because when he's saying here in verse, what he says there in verse 2, he says that, that by faith the elders obtained a good uh, testimony. The idea here is not just like elders as in the leaders of the church. He's talking about people of old, the Old Testament saints, you would say. So he begins to then talk about these Old Testament saints, and it's interesting that he doesn't start with Adam and Eve, he starts with Abel, Cain and Abel. Here's what he says. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Interesting. Interesting, because what we read in Genesis is that both Cain and Abel actually brought sacrifices to God. Let me, let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 4 should be on the screen. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now, at this point, it sounds like this looks okay, doesn't it? Right? Cain is a tiller of the ground. He brings the, the gifts that he has, offers them to God. Abel's the, the one who takes care of sheep. He brings the gifts that he has, offers to God. But what does it say? And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, now I want you to notice, okay, both these guys brought gifts to God, they, 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 but only Abel's was acceptable. Only, only Abel's was one that God says, I will take that, I will acknowledge that, I will look at that and say that's a good thing. Now, what's interesting is that the, the other thing we want to recognize here is both these guys are doing so as an act of worship. There's no reason for Cain to bring um, a sacrifice unless it's meant to be an act of worship. I mean, why else would he do it unless it's meant to be some sort of act of worship? But only Abel did what God required. Now, here's what's interesting. There's actually a lot of debate about what it is, why it is that God took Abel's sacrifice and didn't take Cain's sacrifice. One idea is, is that, uh, that um Abel is bringing the very best. When it says they brought the, the, the lamb and its fat, the fat was considered the best part of the animal. So he's bringing the very best of his flock, the firstborn. He's saying, God, all that I have is you, is yours. Whereas the idea maybe is that Cain is bringing the kind of the leftovers. But the text doesn't actually say that. Others have said, no, what it is, is that um, Cain is bringing the fruit of the ground. And there's no covering of sin from the fruit of the ground, there has to be a shedding of blood from the fruit of the ground. So the fact that Abel brings the, the sheep that's sacrificed uh, shows that he knows his sins need to be atoned for. That, that could be. What's tricky is we just, we just don't know. There's a lot of the debate has to do with how the Greek is formed here and how the Hebrew was formed back in Genesis. And it is, it's an interesting debate. But here's what we know for sure. Abel brought his sacrifice in faith. He brought his sacrifice in faith. He came to God and saying, God, this and this alone is how I'm going to be acceptable to you. Now, what's interesting is that, 
is that the, the, the sacrifice itself says something about these people. And, and you guys probably know, in Hebrew thoughts, a person's name means a lot. Cain's name um, has to do with someone who um, does their best. It kind of points to somebody who is self-reliant. It point, his name points to someone who's strong and, and accomplishes something. Abel's name seems to point to somebody who's weak, uh, who, who's actually not able, <laughs> who actually can't do what he needs to do. Cain comes saying, here's a sacrifice. Here's my act of worship. Abel seems to come saying, God, I'm just coming in faith. I have nothing I can bring to you. I'm just coming in faith. Now, here's the reality, okay? Here's what the Scripture says about these two. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, I'm reading from the NIV, it says this, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. What do we just read in Genesis? When these guys bring their offerings, what happens? When God says, no, that's not what I want. Does Cain say, oh God, forgive me, what do you want? Is that what he does? No. He's, he's, he's just angry. In fact, he's so frustrated that even when God pursues him and talks to him and, and says, look, look, if you do well, you'll be accepted. If you do what I want, you'll be accepted. Even then, he gets mad, and if you read the rest of the chapter, guess what he does? You know what he does. He kills his brother Abel. He kills him, showing that he really doesn't have faith in the God who needs to save him. He has faith in his own sense of righteousness. See, this is the thing that we need to recognize. Both of these guys, they, they both brought forth acts of worship, but only God accepted, God only accepted Abel's because Abel's was done in faith. This is so important because when we're talking about saving faith, we are really, we really are talking about um, meeting God's requirements, that God says, listen, you need to be justified by faith. No one's going to be justified by their works. They're only going to be justified by faith and what I provide for your forgiveness. Faith for what I provide for your righteousness. That's it. No other way. It's important for us to see this. In fact, listen to what Jesus says. When Jesus is, is dealing with this whole group of people who, who he had fed earlier when he fed the 5,000. And they're kind of following him around because they're looking for another free lunch. And, and they're saying, okay, just tell us what works we need to do. Right? You know, Abraham gave the commandments, right? Then, I mean, not Abraham, sorry. Moses gave the commandments, and then Moses fed the, the, the children in, the, in, in Israel. So tell us what we need to do, and then you'll feed us all the time, basically. And here's what Jesus says. Listen, then, Jesus said to, uh, then they said to Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom God sent. This is the work of God, that you trust Him. In Jesus. See, this is what saving faith is. Saving faith is not, I believe that if I work hard enough, God will accept me. That's faith, but it's not saving faith. Because it's faith in yourself, faith in your works. Saving faith is not, I believe, therefore it's going to happen. I just believe, I believe, I believe, and because I believe what I I believe for, it's going to happen. That's not saving faith, that's faith, but it's faith in your faith, not faith in Jesus. Saving faith, listen, is faith in the God who you're approaching. God, you have to save me. This is the only work I have is trusting you. That's saving faith. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get them to see. 
Do you realize even if you go back and you offer those sacrifices and say, okay, God, I'm believing my sacrifice is good enough, don't you realize that you're not believing the one thing that God requires you to believe? That it's only the sacrifice of Christ that's enough? And, and don't, don't think it's just the Hebrews who fall into this, guys. We fall, in this, fall into this as people who go to church, as evangelicals. You have a bill that's due. You don't know how the money's going to come, so what do you do? You come to church. Lord, I'm worshiping you. I'm worshiping you because I think if I worship you hard enough and passionate enough, then you'll provide my needs. Think about how we pray. We feel like if we work it up, if we are sincere enough or we labor hard enough, then God's going to say, yep, now you're going to get this great thing. As opposed to just coming to God and just saying, God, I have nothing to offer but what you've already provided, a sacrificed lamb. That's all. That's all I have. Now, I think this is important, especially as we come to the next bit, right? So we've said so far, saving faith recognizes God's work. Saving faith meets God's requirements. But this is, the, this is why I think it's important for us to recognize this, because look what he says in verse 5. This is what I really want to bring out to you guys. Saving faith pursues God's person. Look at verse 5. He now moves on from Abel to Enoch. He says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him, for, he, for before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Okay, now let's not miss this. I want you to think about how profound this is, what a big deal this is. Enoch got to skip death because he pleased God. The, the whole dying thing, he didn't have to experience. I want you to think about it for a second. There's only two guys in all of Scripture who got to experience that, Enoch and Elijah. It's I'll skip death. Does that sound like a good idea? I like to skip death. Thank you very much. You know, I'll go straight to heaven. Skip death. He got to skip death because he pleased God. I'd say it's a good reward, wouldn't you? Now, it's interesting, though, when we read about what Enoch did. Because here in Hebrews, it says he had this, this testimony that he pleased God. But look what it says about Enoch in Genesis 5. Again, it should be on the screen. It says, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say specifically that he pleased God, but the author of Hebrews saw rightly that he was pleasing to God because he walked with God. Now, what does it mean to walk? Seriously, what does it mean to walk with somebody? The, the idea of walking in the, in, the, in the Scripture is this idea of engaging with a person because you're traveling on the same road in the same direction. You walk. You walk with somebody. So like if you've ever been sort of walking somewhere and you see somebody you know and say, hey, is it cool if I walk with you? And you walk with them. And you're wa- walking with them doesn't just mean you're on the same road in the same direction. It means you're engaging because you are on the same road going the same direction. You follow me? That's what it means to walk. So the reality here is that this guy Enoch, we read about him in Genesis 5, Enoch walks with God and God says, I'm pleased with this. I'm pleased with the fact that we are walking the same road. We are going the same direction. And I'm pleased that you're doing this with me. You're doing this with me. I mean, think about this, guys. It's as if God's saying, man, I like being with Enoch so much, I'm going to just take him heaven early. 
You say, he lived 300 years, but man, if you read the list of the genealogies during this time, these guys were living 600, 800, or 900 years sometimes. So it's kind of like, it'd be like kind of going, you know, man, I, you know, I just really love Sarah. She's the best. John's an idiot, but Sarah, she's the best. And so I'm going to take Sarah home early. I just want her to be with me right now, all the time. And in a sense, that's kind of what the Lord's doing here. He's saying, I want him so much that I want to take him home early. Now, here's what's interesting. Because we're talking about the fact that Enoch skipped death because he pleased God. Is there a chance we could do that as well? Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. I'm reading from the NLT now. It says, For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. We sang about this. I believe in the resurrection, right? Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture, uh, uh, the scripture, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, in the same context, the author talks about we won't all die, but we'll all be changed, which I think is a reference to what we call the rapture. Now, here's the thing. Most believers in church history never experienced the rapture. They're not going to get caught up. It hasn't happened yet, in case you didn't know. <laughs> so most of us will experience death, but do you understand this? Do you understand what this promise is? It's basically saying death has lost its sting. We don't have to be afraid of death. Yeah, we don't have to look forward to the pain of it, but we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. It's lost its sting. Why? Because in Christ, when we're in union with Christ, we're pleasing to God and death has lost its sting because Christ has conquered death. He's resurrected. We believe we're going to be resurrected because He's resurrected. Death has lost its sting. So in a very real sense, guys, as those who walk with God, as those who, who want to please God, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Yeah. Amen. But he goes on to say this. In verse 6, he says, listen, notice, for without faith, it is difficult to please Him. Oh, wait, did I read that wrong? It's not difficult, is it? It's impossible. It's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Guys, listen, do you understand what the author of Hebrews is saying? He's talking about, listen, that saving faith is the kind of faith that is pursuing God's person. It sees God as the goal. Ask yourself this question. What do you want more than God? Because what you want more than God, what I want more than God, is our God. See, saving faith is the kind of faith that says there's no other gods before me. I want God more than I want success in my career. I want God more than I want success in my marriage. I want God more than I want to see my kids do well. I want God more than fill in the blank. And because I want God more, I'm going to pursue Him, but I'm not going to just pursue Him hoping maybe, gee, I'll find Him. I'm going to pursue Him by faith, and the kind of faith that pursues Him, listen, is the kind of, is the kind of faith that believes that God wants to make Himself known to us. I'm not seeking a God who's playing hard to get. I'm not seeking a God who's hiding himself from us, from me. 
No, we're seeking a God who we believe we can know. Do you realize that's what Jesus prayed for us in John 17? He prayed that he would, he prayed that we would know God and Jesus Christ whom God had sent. We would know God. That's eternal life, he said. This is it. This is what life is about. Our existence forever is about us knowing God. Listen to this. David writes this in Psalm 27. David, who conquered kingdoms. David, who did great things for God. David said, actually, there's one thing I have desired of the Lord. Listen, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To, why? For what reason? To behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. Do you know why the Scripture describes David as a man for God's own heart? Because he was. He wanted God more than he wanted anything else. In fact, it was his son Solomon who uh, decided he'd see if maybe he wanted something more than God and pursued wisdom and pursued pleasure and pursued success. And at the end, he just said, it's all vanity. Nothing's better than just remembering your, your Creator in the days of your youth. Nothing's better than just obeying and knowing God. Paul says a similar thing. Listen to this. Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3, he says everything, I'm reading from the NLT, he says everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race to receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. What's the heavenly prize? I get to see him face to face. Saving faith pursues God's person. Listen, again, these are not prerequisites for you to be saved. This is the faith that God is saving you by. This is the faith that God has called you to and is developing in you every time you hear the word. This is the faith the Holy Spirit is calling us to and empowering us to act upon. The kind of faith that says, God, I want you. Even if it kills me, I want you. Even when it costs me, I want you. I want everything I do to be about knowing you. Can I just give you a really honest testimony? I don't always live my life this way. In fact, probably to be honest, more times than not, God's not the one thing I want. But I'm so thankful that I can say there have been times in my life, seasons in my life, periods in my life where I just thought, God, nothing else matters than me knowing you. And those seasons have been the best, whether circumstances were good or circumstances were bad. They've been the best seasons. God, I want to know you do you know that's what God used to get me to come to England? When I was saying, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, God made it so clear to me, John, listen, if you want me, I'll be in England. <laughs> Not because God's left America, though if Trump gets voted in, maybe that's the case, I don't know. It's, the fact is, listen, no, the fact is That God says, look, look, this is not about the kind of ministry you want to do. This is about, do you want me more than you want anything else? Guys, sometimes in our lives, it's the good things that become enemy to the best. The best thing being God himself.
A lot of the things that we desire, good things we desire, are the enemy to the best thing, which is the one thing we should desire. God, I want to know you. You saved me to know you. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, don't you understand? This is saving faith. You get to know God. You can see in Jesus who God is. You can have a real, intimate relationship with your creator. How can you improve on that? And and here's what's really cool, too. It's not as if that only happens when you're having a quiet time or you're at church or you're in small group. Do you realize that everything that God's called you to do, working, raising children, having friendships, mowing your lawn, <laughs> are a means for God to reveal Himself to you. All of life is about you knowing God. This is what makes your life worth living. You can have a rubbish job, but if you say, okay, God, you have sovereignly allowed me to be here so you can reveal yourself to me, guess what? You can find grace in that job. All right, God, these people are horrible to work with, but you're amazing, so show me what, what you want to show me. Show me what it means to love my enemies by being in a place where everyone hates me. Lord, my kids just don't want to respond to me, but I, I don't want to respond to you. Show me what mercy looks like. I'm going to know your mercy through this. You know when I learned so much more about God's commitment to me when I first learned the most is when we, had, when we first had kids. And, and I remember when they were so small and they could do nothing for you. They were wrinkly and purple and they just cried and pooped. That's it. And you would die for that kid. And you think, where does that come from? And it is a shadow of God's commitment to us in Christ. And He says to us, seek my face. Listen, we, if we want to please God, it's not God being pleased because we bring the right sacrifices or because we work really hard or because we do all the right things. No, what pleases God is when we say, God, I want you and I believe I can have you. And I believe that only because of what Jesus has done for me. That's saving faith. That's Christianity. I think the stillness that we're feeling right now is the fact that we are exposed to how quick we give up that relationship for religion. How we tick off the box of reading our Bibles or how we say the right prayers or we tithe or we serve or we try to invite our neighbors to the church and we think, okay, now I'm pleasing to God. When God says, don't you get it? I only call you to do those things because I want you to know me. That's what he wants. God doesn't need us to know him. We need to know him. You want to please God? You can please God right now by just saying, God, I want to know you right now. In the next 10 minutes left of service, I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to draw near to you. You can please God by doing that. Now, it's interesting because the last person he brings up in our section is Noah. And he says, By faith, Noah, divinely warned of things not yet seen, Moved with godly fear. Now, what things that he had not yet seen? Well, Noah, 
had not yet seen a flood that God was going to bring. God promised he's going to flood the world. He tells Noah this. He'd never seen this before. The world never been flooded. It's not been flooded since like that. But he also tells him why. It says this in the book of Genesis. Again, this is now Genesis 6. And again, I'm reading from the NLT because I think it flows well. It says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry they had ever made them, and He put them on the earth. And it broke His heart, and the Lord said, I will wipe this human race Uh, that I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry around the ground, even the birds of uh, 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 of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah was a righteous man and the only blameless person living on the earth at that time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Now it's interesting because it's only Enoch and Noah who are, who are said to specifically have walked with God this way, to have pleased God. Here's the thing about Noah. It's not just that Noah didn't know about a global flood. Noah could not have known the extent of human evil. And we think we know because we watch the news. And we get angry at the news. How come they only show all the bad stuff? People do good things too. Show the good stuff. Because we also, like Noah, could not know how corrupt humanity actually is. We can't see it. We, we, we can maybe feel it from time to time. We experience it when we see people being so cruel, but we can't see it. But here's the thing. Noah walked by faith in that revelation. All right, God says He's going to destroy the world because the people are this wicked. I believe he's going to do this. And here's why he believed, because he walked closely with God. He knew how good God was, and so he knew if God's that good and God says everybody else is this wicked, well, God's the judge, not me. This is important. It's important because saving faith heeds God's warning, and that heeding flows. It's a a reverence, listen, that flows from relationship. It's a reverence that God's Judgment, God's critique of humanity is the most accurate. It's the most trustworthy. If God says we are all broken, we are all sinful, if God says that, that's the best view. See, I don't believe that everyone's sinful based just on my experience. It's not just on my experience. My experience is that nobody's perfect. And my experience is there's some nasty pieces of work out there. But my experience also, to be honest, is there's some really lovely people, people who aren't Christians. We have some lovely neighbors that aren't Christians. We just had a meal with them on Monday. Lovely people. They're not Christians. Yet. (laughs) But here's what I know. I know that God is good. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is good. He is so good And I know that here's what he says about humanity. He says we are broken and rebellious and we're wicked and we don't seek after him. I know that this God says, who is good, who says we 
fall short. This God said in the person of Jesus Christ, listen, all these things that you see, these evil things, greed, covetousness, uh, uh, worship of idols, adultery, fornication, these things come out of men's hearts. They flow from his brokenness. That's what Jesus says about humanity. And I trust him. You know why? Because he's so good and so merciful and so gracious. Noah had to do this. Noah, listen, he was not able to fully perceive a global flood or even the fullness of the corruption of the human heart. But listen, he was able to relate to the God who could perceive those things. The hardest part about Noah's flood, the story of Noah's flood in Genesis 6, to me, the hardest part is not the fact that there could be a global flood. I think that actually helps explain what we have in the fossil record. Another Bible study. But that's not the hardest thing for me. The hardest thing is to kind of think, okay, God killed everyone on the earth except for eight people. You know the only reason why I can believe that? It's because of what I see about Jesus. He's good. The God that I know, the God of the Bible, is good. And if he says that we're all that wicked, we're all that wicked. And I've got to say to you, to be honest, I have no problem believing that I'm that wicked. Because the more I walk with this God, the more I realize, gosh, he's worthy of love. And I just don't want to love him. I want to live for myself. And I have to repent moment by moment. Forgive me, Lord, you're worthy of better than this. And he still loves me the same. So I trust him. Now there's something else to this that we need to recognize, okay? Because it says in verse 7, listen, it says that he was moved with godly fear and he prepared an ark for the saving of his household. How long did it take Noah to build the ark, according to Scripture? Anybody know? 120 years. What was he doing during those 120 years besides building the ark? He was preaching righteousness. He was telling people, listen, God who is good is giving you 120 years to repent. 120 years. The ark has room for more than just my eight family members. Plenty of room here. He's given you time to repent. Interesting because it says that he does this, listen, he prepares the ark and by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness which is according to faith. Now listen to what Peter says about Noah's ministry or really speaking about what God did. He says in, in 2 Peter 2.5, again reading from the NLT, he says, God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and seven other members of his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment, so God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of the ungodly with a vast flood. What did Noah do? He warned the world. Hey, you know why we believe in judgment? Because we, we hope for justice. Don't we want justice? Seriously, don't we want justice? Don't we want to see rapists and pedophiles and corporate crooks get what they deserve? Don't we want to see those things to end? We want justice. You know our only hope for justice? If there's someone powerful enough and good enough to bring justice to pass. That's the God we see in Jesus. 
And Noah warned people. And, and I, don't, I honestly don't think Noah's going around like, you're all down for hell, you horrible people. Noah knew he found grace. In fact, Noah was such a sinner that as soon as they land, what happens? He gets drunk and exposes himself to his kids. He knew he found grace. No, I bet Noah was going, look, I know you think I'm nuts. It's never rained like that before. I'm building a boat in the middle of nowhere. But this sucker's huge because God wants you to come to him. And I'm warning you, the flood's real. God's good. He doesn't lie. He wouldn't give some sort of fake threat, an empty threat. He's too good to do that. He's, given the, he's telling you what's going to happen because he doesn't want you to perish. See, this is the kind of righteousness that flows from repentance. You know what's going to motivate us to warn people of God's good justice? To say, listen, we want justice too. We're going to pursue that with you as well. But we have to first deal with the injustice in our own lives. And I'm just telling you, I have to turn back to God on a daily basis. And if it wasn't for His mercies, I'd be consumed. But I know that God is just. He's faithful and just to forgive me. And cleanse me from all unrighteousness because Christ died for my sins so that I wouldn't have to be judged. And so I'm telling you, you've got to turn to, to, to Jesus first if you want to see justice come to this earth. This isn't a popular message, is it? Let, let's be honest. As I'm saying this, I'm also thinking, how hard is this to tell people? But you know where that comes from? That daily repentance that, or that kind of righteousness, it comes from a daily repentance, turning back to God and saying, God, I need your forgiveness and so does everybody else. So I want to do what it takes so that people know you. See, this is the thing that we have to understand. Saving faith, listen, saving faith heeds God's warnings. You know why? Because we believe that God is good enough to warn us and not give empty threats. Paul wrote this warning to the Corinthians who he loved, who he commended for a lot of good things, but they were carnal, so he wrote this to them. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. God's, this is what Paul writes to believers, to Christians, professing believers. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Why does God give that warning? Why give a warning to people who, hey, you're saved, man. God's got you. Because we can't think it's okay for us to say we believe in Jesus and we're going to live in all the ways that, well, basically mean he, meant he had to be crucified in the first place. We're going to live for Jesus, but we're not going to repent. We're going to believe in Jesus, but we're not going to turn from our sin. God says to us, don't be deceived. Saving faith heeds God's warning. God, you said, i got to turn from sin. I'm saying this to you as a person who sins on a daily basis. You guys know I don't mess about with this. I'm not acting like I'm better than any of you. But guess what? I have to turn from my sin. 
It's not something I do because I want to be spiritual or impress you with my humility. If I don't, I'm dead. And I do because I can, because I've been washed and I've been sanctified and I've been justified. I can turn back to God. This is saving faith. This is what God calls us to. The Jesus of the Bible calls us to this kind of faith. Do you have saving faith? Seriously. Do you have saving faith? The Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. If you're hearing what I'm saying today, and in your heart, you're going, I need to believe that way, that's God producing saving faith in you. Exercise it. Act upon it. Draw near to Him. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Know Him. That's what He wants for you.